Hello everyone, and welcome back to Wisdom in this Haze. I'm your host, Brian, and I hope you all enjoyed the uh, new snazzy intro. I'm doing my best to grow and sound a bit more professional, so thank you for coming along on this journey with me. I believe it was uh, John Green who said, In the end, what you do isn't going to be nearly as interesting or as important as who you do it with. And that is certainly true for me with the immense support I receive from you beautiful listeners. Uh, Last episode, we heard the beginning of Shepherd, a story about people with interesting and unique gifts. We followed Adrian Cross as he learned one of his former friends and mentors had switched sides. That tale piqued your interest, then uh, I implore you to reach out via wisdominthishaze at gmail.com or leave me a comment on Facebook at the Wisdom in This Haze podcast page. I love the feedback and constructive criticism, and it helps me tailor this audio experience to your liking. Well, today we're going to change it up. I'm going to read the first chapter of Setting Sun. This is a manuscript I've been working on for a very long time. And those of you that know me on a personal level know this is a passion project sorry, of mine that's been in the making for many, many years. This is a story of, and get ready for some originality here, vampires. But unlike the kind of bloodsuckers you're used to in mainstream media, these guys are broken and often not quite right in the head. It's a half-dark comedy and half-horror action. And this epic's about putting the fate of our world in the hands of creatures of the night that half the time can't even get along with each other. Well, if you want to hear more of this and or Shepard, again, please let me know. And of course, uh, as a preface, there is a lot of uh, graphic language in this, uh, a little bit of violence, nothing too crazy, at least nothing I don't think you can handle. <laughs> All right, enjoy. My name is Lance L. Stolen, and I am a vampire. I know, I'm laughing as I say this out loud, but it's true. Before your brain starts running away with all these twilight-induced fantasies, let me reassure you, it sucks. Sucks worse than taking a 7mm hollow point to the kneecap, which is bad. But what's more important here is why I'm talking to a 15-year-old tape recorder and why you're listening to it. You see, in about 12 hours, I'm about to pick a fight with one of the meanest, strongest, downright crazy assholes to ever be given the gift. I'm not doing this for you. Hell, or even me. I could even give a rat's ass about the rest of the world that I may save from some grim fate. This is for you, Em. I hope you realize just how much you mean to a crusty old bloodsucker like me. But I'm rambling. This might make more sense to you if I start a little further back. I don't want to go all Tarantino on you and mess with the timeline of this weird tale, so let's go back to 1945. That was the year when a black-as-night New Orleans native gave birth to yours truly. My mother was just like every other colored woman of her time, struggling to survive in a world that didn't want our kind. Every day she'd wake up at four in the morning and walk the three miles to Lafayette Hotel, where she was paid two dollars a day to wash the sheets of Chicago's elite. Every truly good kid in this world loves his mama, and I was no different. That woman would work her hands to the bone, and still she kept a smile on her face. Her feet would bleed from the long walk she made every day in her worn shoes, and still she'd greet you with a full-tooth grin and a wink. It was that kind of love for life that drew my daddy's eye. My daddy was one of the few black men honored for his part in the war. He was a pilot, and proudly claimed he shot down six of those German bastards from the sky. When he came back to the States, he got a job as a garbage man. It's pretty fucked up when you think about it, but he didn't pay no mind. Mama would tell me when I was a boy about how Daddy would take pride in his work. 
He'd even go so far as to say if it weren't for him, this city would end up to its ears and shit. I could see myself in him, taking care of everyone else's shit because no one else was going to. When Mama got knocked up, my daddy rushed right out and spent all his savings on a ring. He was always the kind of guy that did the right thing. Had he not been a stubborn son of a bitch, he might have been alive to see his son go to school and be somebody. But when he left that jewelry store on 18th Street, he was jumped in an alley two blocks down. Three men demanded his ring and his wallet, to which my daddy told them to kindly fuck themselves. Well, one of the men shot him four times in the face and left him in that alley dead. Police never caught the men responsible, and at that time it was a wonder they could even recognize the body. My mama fell apart that day, as any woman would, but she quickly picked herself back up off that grimy kitchen floor and she pushed on. She knew how to work, and she would do so to give her baby boy everything she could. And that's where I come in. Mama named me Lance after my daddy. Stolen was a family name that my great-great-granddad took on after being released from slavery. He was a clever man. He believed his life was stolen from him, so he took on the name Stolen to symbolize that. Still not sure where the eye comes in. I was like any other kid in my neighborhood. I played in the streets, watched the TVs through the glass at the electronics store. I stared in disbelief when man landed on the moon and Ed Sullivan introduced the latest and greatest in music. I inherited my daddy's smarts, and when I got to high school, I found out I was a pretty good point guard on the courts. Given my immense height, it was no wonder. By the time I was 17 years old, I towered at 6 foot 11 inches. Sure, the kids made fun of me, but none of them had the balls to say anything to my face. When I walked into Coach Sampson's gymnasium to try out for the team, his wide-eyed stare was enough of an answer. I was playing on the varsity team in less than a year, and almost led us to the state championship, and our forward not broke his ankle at a party the night before. As high school came to an end, I found myself with no clue as to what the hell to do with my life. So I did what every poor kid in America did at that time. I joined the Marines, fought the good fight against the Viet Cong. I can still remember my drill sergeant, Gunnery Sergeant Drew Petty, screaming at my chest. Seven-foot African-American man in BT was an easy target for his endless string of motivational insults. But I quickly proved myself at the range. Turns out a black giant from the ghetto could handle an M60 like a pro. I remember one particular day on the range, as Petty tried to scream over the endless repeating monster in my hands when I earned my call sign. Petty was far from a large man. His attempt to establish dominance over me without a step stool was always hilarious. On this day, he had chosen the wrong side to stand on, as I practiced with this massive gun. His exposed skin was quickly covered in burns from the spent shells falling on him. When he finally caught my attention by pistol-whipping me in the kidney, his words were heard across the whole camp. God damn it, Stolen, I swear to Christ Almighty, you're only good for raining on this squad like a fountains of bullets and bullshit. Fountain became my nickname. The guys in my unit loved their nicknames. Saw a lot of action on the front lines. Killed a few guys. I'm not going to say I enjoyed it. I didn't want to be there, like every other poor bastard in that pointless war. But I signed up, and I wasn't about to give up and wash out. I was somewhere outside Da Nang, routing Charlies from their little nests when my squad was overrun. We were outnumbered ten to one, but I'll be goddamned if we didn't earn our stripes. We held our little hill for two full days before we were able to call in a napalm strike to give us some breathing room. The only problem was that, in all that chaos, our men got mixed up 
and the fire was called down right on top of us. I tried to get out of there, clambering over bodies and under bullets to dive in a nearby stream, but like so many other good men there, I was too late. The flames took my whole squad, leaving only me as the sole survivor. I was far from unscathed. The napalm took half my face and burned most of my body. Luckily, the army found me before Charlie did, but nothing will erase those memories of laying there for six hours in three-inch-deep water, listening to every man I ever trusted with my life burn alive or succumb to bullet wounds in agony. As day turned to night, my skin tormented me with every movement. I prayed to whatever god there may be in heaven to watch over my mama. I spent two days in a mash before they sent me back home. I was always teetering on the edge, with every doctor refusing to give false hope. But somehow, I grabbed life by the ball hairs and refused to let go. I had escaped the war only to live my life in a hospital bed. I would have preferred to die in that bed than what happened next. One godforsaken night, a month after the fire from heaven nearly took my life, I awoke to a stranger in the room. I had grown so used to sleeping in a state of constant interruption that I normally would have just rolled over and went back to sleep. Something was vastly different about this man. Might have been his dark attire or odd-shaped ears that set me off. Or it could have quite easily been the way in which he slurped the neck of Carl, my roommate. Blood stained the sheets around his bed with a sickly brownish crimson. And the man held his free hand over Carl's mouth to stifle whatever scream he might have been able to muster. My first instinct was to cry out. Maybe even leap from the bed in some feeble attempt to stop whatever the hell was happening. But I couldn't move. Something had me paralyzed with fear. This thing was massacring one of my few friends, and all I could do was stare in horror. The creature seemed to notice my eyes upon him, for he stopped suckling on Carl's neck, without turning to me, sniffed the air. What's wrong, boy? Something inside got you scared stiff. He said as he turned to me. The light in the room seemed to bend at odd angles around his face, making it nearly impossible to make anything out. He was grinning. That much I could see. The light from passing cars glistened off his red-stained and broken teeth. His eyes I'll never be able to forget. They were yellow. The kind of yellow you see on tar-stained walls. But the color wasn't unsettling, no. It was the way he studied me. An empty, analytical, calculating gaze. He was dissecting me with great pleasure. I tried to roll out of the bed fell on my face straight to the floor. My legs had atrophied, and I wasn't going anywhere, but I'd be damned if I wasn't going to try. That man-thing was on top of me, clenching my hair with his rotting nails and wrenching my neck back until it popped painfully between my shoulder blades. He pressed his knee into my spine and pinned me to the cold linoleum. I tried my hardest to cry out, but my throat was taut, and my mouth was dry. All I could do was grimace at the pain. He knelt and whispered in my ear. His breath was warm and fetid. It smelled like bile, and I gagged now at the thought of it. Well, aren't you a pathetic little creature? What's your story? Does it end in pain? Oh, I've been bored for far too long. I think I need a pet. Let's see how long you last, yes? And with that, he slammed my face into the floor and knocked me out. I'll skip over the next week. But let's just say that Nam was nothing. I learned later that the fucking parasite had a name. Toggle. Of 
kind of a fucked up name was that? Toggle kept me in a room deep underground. I would wake to be fed cold oatmeal and molded bread, and then hours of malicious, unreasonable torture. Toggle had a sick hobby, and I'd become his new project. A week with this scum left almost every bone in my body broken, and what little flesh I had left torn and twisted. He never drank my blood like he did to Carl, who I now consider the fortunate one. He said I'd taste bad like a stale beer. Instead, he got a kick out of watching it flow from every point where he could draw it, often with the form of some rusted surgical instrument. I should have broke. Still don't know why I didn't. Maybe it was the stubbornness I inherited from Mama. Maybe it was the idea that I'd lived through worse. I wasn't going to give this thing the satisfaction of taking me without a fight. Well, maybe I was just too damn stupid to give up. Didn't matter, because it finally ended. I don't remember what day it was, or even where I was. Stangling by my arms, which were still bound in the leather straps from the day before, as Toggle repeatedly struck me with a bullwhip across my naked chest. The pain had become so regular that I hardly felt it anymore. Every lash was a hope that it would be the last, that I'd finally bleed out, and it'd all be over. The only door in this dungeon flew open. Three men stepped through. The two taken up the rear were not important enough to be remembered. The man in front was one I'd soon come to look up to. He was six foot and far from lean. He wore a clean, pressed charcoal gray suit, and his skin was darker. Found out later he was Sioux Indian. His hair was gelled and slicked back against his skull. He looked around the room and at me with distaste. Toggle, once arrogant and maniacal, quickly lost his composure, dropped to his knees with head bowed. He looked too much like a shameful mutt. The man curled his lip in disgust at the sight of Toggle and me and muttered over his shoulder, Cut him down. As the other two men removed my bindings, I sighed deeply. My shoulders burned in their sockets, and relief couldn't even describe the feeling. I could feel myself slipping away as I leaned against the taller of the two men, but not before I heard the man whisper to Toggle. He was kneeling beside him, and I may have hallucinated a rolled-up newspaper in his hand. I am very disappointed in you. And I was out. I awoke some time later, and I had no concept of time or space. I had nothing solid to hang on. My mind was reeling back from deprivation. I sat up as far as I could, my eyes darted around the room. I was in a hotel room, maybe a Motel 6, judging from the lack of luxury. My body was wrapped in bandages. While I could still feel every nerve cry out in pain, I felt like an enormous pressure had been released. An IV by my bedside had me wondering what clear liquid was feeding me, and if I could get more. The room was dark, save for one lamp by the table in the corner. Sitting in a stained fuchsia chair with his jacket draped across the back was the same man that had saved me. His one leg crossed over the other. He looked like he was wearing the same suit. He had his fingers pressed together, and his eyes closed as though he was meditating or some shit. When I sat back against the headboard and slowed my heart, his eyes opened, and a smile crossed his face. Didn't think you'd make it. Actually, I was hoping you wouldn't. It'd make this much easier. He said as he stood and slid the chair closer to the bed. 
I was too weak to care if he was going to kill me at this point. I am sorry for what you've gone through. Toggle's a very ill man, and unfortunately you've been witness to this. But past that, we have something much more important to discuss. The next few hours I spent talking to the man, who called himself Kai Pole. It was educational, to say the least. He confirmed what I was thinking. They were not normal, and certainly not human. Now I, like you, I don't believe in this vampire and magic and fairy shit. I live in the world I saw around me every day, unaware these things were not only real, but stalking us. Now, I didn't want to believe it. Maybe it was the drugs they were drip-feeding me, or the complete crap that life had just taken on my head, but I knew I had to. There's just no other way to explain it. What had my brain running more than the thought of vampires was what Kai Pola told me next. I had seen too much. You've suffered, and I am a man of mercy. While I pity your state, I am left with two options, two very important paths I can take on this journey with you. It's a decision that I'll leave up to you. It's only fair that a man's life should be his own. I can end this. I can end your life and allow you final rest. No more agony, more suffering, just peaceful nothingness. Or, he made it a point to pause for as long as possible before he continued. Or I can give you something more. Never seen a man endure so much and still have his sanity. It's been a long while since I've seen a man take that punishment and still walk out on his own two feet. That kind of fortitude is so unique in a mortal like yourself. I find it admirable. I could use a man like you in my occupation. I can take away the pain, but I cannot remove the scars. I can give you the strength to not only go on, but to surpass. But I cannot give you the power to turn back. Regardless, Mr. Stolen, this choice is yours. I'll give you one hour to think it over. And then he rose and just casually exited the room. His words still stick in my head like a bad 80s song on the radio. I didn't want to be like Toggle. That was my fate, my eternity, and shoot me in the fucking head. I thought hard, though, weighing every part of my decision against everything I once knew as normal and rational. When the door opened suddenly, tearing me from my thoughts, and Kai Pole stood at the foot of my bed with an unemotional gaze, I knew what I had to do. The tape recorder whirred and then seized its rhythmic tick. Fountain furrowed his brow and walked over to the glass end table where it rested. How the hell could the tape be over already? Why didn't he just fork over the extra money for one of those fancy digital recorders? He sighed and angrily jabbed at the eject button. Oh, well, fuck it. He muttered aloud to the empty room. He pulled the tape out and flipped it over before shoving it back in. Guess I was getting kind of boring anyway. Might as well cut to the real story. End of Side A well, again, I hope you all enjoyed that. And that was chapter one of Setting Sun. Uh, again, please leave me your feedback, your comments. Let me know if you want to hear more. Uh, this episode's only slightly shorter than the previous one. Um, but again, thank you for listening, and I hope you all have a fantastic day.